Domino, Domino, only spot a few blacks to hang out Domino, Domino, only spot a few blacks to hang out Guess what time it is? You guessed it, it's mail time. We have a lot of submissions for mail time this week. We ask you to please, please, please keep them coming. I love reading them. I do not have the ability to put all of them on, but trust you me, I am working to get your mail times on here. If you have a mail time, you can send us your story via Instagram at BWEpod, on Twitter at BWEpodcast, and via email at blackworkexperiencepod at gmail.com. This story comes in from uh, a teacher, and I want to make sure I keep this anonymous. I was placed in an area in a charter school that was predominantly white. As a person of color, I constantly felt out of place in my school and the community, enduring various instances of subtle and overt racism for the years that I taught there. Once I was even told by a student to go back to Mexico. I was told by another staff member that I could only get good Mexican food in the bad part of town. My school also made no effort to provide any type of DEI training. I told my support staff that I felt unsupported being one of the few people of color in my region and asked for more support from my organization. I gave suggestions such as hosting maybe an affinity group or coordinating people who have taught here before. My voice was continuously ignored. My organization shouldn't expect to be praised for bringing in people of color if they aren't willing to provide the support needed to navigate the challenges we face, especially when working in predominantly white areas and communities. Wow. Um, you know, this podcast, and, and John, we're going to introduce you, but, and, 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 but this podcast talks about these things so, so much, about it's not enough to just hire black people and people of color if you don't create the space that they feel comfortable working there. So I, I just want to say this because people are listening to this and I know there are probably some other individuals who are there who, who've been in this predicament or probably still in this predicament. Know your value, know your worth. And if you don't feel comfortable, like there is a place, there is an organization for you that will make you feel valued, that will recognize what you bring to the table and that and, and will make sure that you as a person, all of your identities, you will be able to bring your whole self to work. And I just want to make sure that you all hear this and know that you're not the only one going through this. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Robert Stevens, and this is the Black Work Experience Podcast. As you may know, I started this podcast because I was tired of being the only black male or one of the few black people at my organization. This can be crazy. I was constantly called upon to speak for the black experience or expected to do the emotional labor after blatantly racist things occurred. This is heavy and it left me feeling unappreciated, fragile and in need of a change. I began to ask my friends if they ever experienced being the only one or one of the few people of color at their job and the impact it had upon them. We discussed what it felt like to experience microaggressions and not have a friend or ally to lean on. Balancing the thin line between needing your coins and not being tokenized is never easy. But guess what? You have us now and we will always have your back. The Black Work Experience explores the intersections between race, 
class and privilege in America and in the workforce. We tell the stories of those who paved and are currently paving the way. As people of color gain more institutional, political, and economic power, we often find ourselves surrounded by people who do not look like us, talk like us, or even think like us. I fully recognize that not all people think alike. And this podcast discusses what it's like to walk in the shoes of those who feel alone. The stories we share on this podcast may seem foreign to you and your experience. However, a lot of Black people experience microaggressions daily, and we need an outlet. This is your outlet. You are not alone. This podcast is for all people, but we focus heavily on Black people. I want you to know that you're not the only one experiencing microaggressions, otherness, and potential loneliness at work. If you identify with majority culture, listen to the podcast. Think about how you can help your Black colleagues when your coworker talks over them, runs to the manager instead of having a difficult conversation or calls them intimidating. Okay, I am so excited to bring in our special guest for today. Charlene Stansberry serves as the Chief of Staff of Representative Yvette Clark, the Vice Chair of the House Energy and Commerce Committee. Previously, and we all, if, if you know her, you call her Char, so I'm going to go ahead and call her that. Previously, Char served as the Legislative Director at Council, where she managed Representative Clark's legislative portfolio and saw her committee work. Prior to working for Representative Clark, Char served as the Vice President of External Affairs for a consulting firm, Council for the Multicultural Media, Telecom and Internet Council, and professional staff for the Congressional Black Caucus and 113 staff. She earned her JD from Florida International University College of Law and her BSBA and her MPA from the University of Central Florida. Y'all, oh, this is a rock star. I am honored to have her on the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us. Come on. How are you doing today? Thank you, Robert. Um, thank you for having me. It's it's amazing work that you're doing right now. So little bit of me, thank you for even selecting me to be your special guest today. Come on. If I had your hands, I would cut mine off. That's what we say where I'm from. We're so happy. You are a big shot. And just tell us about yourself. Who is Char? Who are you? Tell us about yourself. Yeah, so um, I'm a country girl, if you hear my accent, proud country girl. So I was born and raised in uh, Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, Like you mentioned, I uh, went to school at Central Florida, went to law school at Florida International. Uh, Never thought I would be a lawyer. Never thought I would be working on Capitol Hill. Mm -hmm. Um, One thing I think about as far as like my background in politics and policy, I have uh, ra- was raised with a great grandmother and a great grand uncle who love politics, who love uh, understanding what the Congressional Black Caucus does, what mm-hmm. was on the news and voting and being involved in civic engagement was number one to them because they didn't always have that opportunity. So now that mm. I think back in hindsight to where I am now, it's because of them. That is, a, that is amazing. We talk a lot about how where we are today is a direct result of like what we were exposed to. We had, some of you may have listened, I remember we had Dr. Ashley Taylor um, received a PhD and, and, and she's a big time scientist. But 
her parents brought home computers when she was a young kid and got her involved in STEM. And so thinking about where you are today as a direct result of individuals who came before you who didn't have that ability to jump in. And we think about, you know, recently we just lost Congressman John Lewis and Reverend C.T. Vivian, who literally spent a large portion of their lives fighting that we would have the right to vote. So I think it's only right that we do what we have to do to preserve that for them and for the future of everyone. So let's talk about this. You talked about you, you know, saying yourself, you're working on Capitol Hill, working in policy. Take us on a journey through your professional career. Like, how did you get here? And exactly what do you do? Because some people may not understand what a chief of staff for a member of Congress does. Absolutely. Um, so one unique thing is I usually say chief of staff is chief of stuff because mm -hmm. there's not one thing that I do on a consistent basis every day. Um, my, my entire uh, role as a chief of staff or chief of stuff is just making sure that the Congresswoman's schedule, that um, all of the roles and positions that she have are just flowing and going in place. Mm -hmm. And that involves managing staff that's in DC. It involves managing staff in her Brooklyn, New York office. And then it mm -hmm. also is about like her campaign. So I always say it's three different lanes that I could be touching or managing every day. But I mean, my career is simple. I thought that I would be in public relations right now. Mm. I was a part of a program called Inroads, which was for people of color who were interested in business and STEM. And then the recession hit. And during the recession, I needed a job. I ended up working at State Farm and I got mentored by the lawyer that worked in-house mm. at State Farm. Mm -hmm. So then while I was working for State Farm, I was studying for the LSAT. I got into law school at FIU. I was a part of the National Black Law Students Association and everything mm -hmm. was in DC for Nabalsa. Uh, we worked with a lot of CBC members. All of my friends in Balsa were involved on working on the Hill, whether they were an intern, a fellow. It just seemed like the interesting thing to do. So once I graduated law school, I had some money from my grandmother who always believed in me. And mm -hmm. I just packed up from Miami, Florida and moved to Washington, D.C. with an unpaid internship working for the Black Caucus. Mm. Mm. I want to I want to ask you a question real quick, because we talk a lot and people don't quite understand how you get on Capitol Hill. Right. Like there is a formula mm -hmm. for getting on Capitol Hill. And for a lot of people, that formula begins with an unpaid internship. Um, mm -hmm. and, and when we think about like this podcast, black work experience, we think about the systemic barriers that exist. Like, a lot of people of color, specifically black people, we can't afford to work for free and live in Washington, mm -hmm. DC, one of the most expensive places in America. And this is why Capitol Hill looks the way it looks in terms of the stark differences between, um, the number of people of color who work and the people, uh, white majority individuals who work on Capitol Hill because they have access to wealth or or some sort of way to sustain themselves. Absolutely. And how, so how, how long have you been there? How long have you been on Capitol Hill? So I've been on and off Capitol Hill since 2013. So I'm going on about seven years. Going on about seven years. And there's a new study that was released um, back in 2018, and it found that of the top 1,174 House staffers on the Hill, 1,103 are white. 
um, the Joint Center for Political and Economic Studies, they released this. And and like, what ha how have you navigated that as a black woman? And sometimes, you know, let me just be very transparent. I say this, mm -hmm. my listeners know I'm, I am, I'm black, my wife is black, my I have <laughs> girls, they're black. So I say this understanding, you know, and I grew up reared by a black woman and two older black sisters. Sometimes like people consider that a double ding, right? Like mm -hmm. not only are you a woman, right? And we know women are not paid the way they should be paid, but you're yep. black as well. So like, how have you navigated being a black woman like in leadership on Capitol Hill when very few of your colleagues look like you? Absolutely. I think that's a great question because it's been hard. I'm not going to say that it's been something that's been easy flowing or easy going. Um, I think one thing that has helped me is I was raised with a great grandmother, a grandmother and a mother. So it's four generations of black women who basically were just, you know, I've been taught if there's any obstacle, you can overcome it. Uh, always be mm -hmm. yourself. Always know your worth. Um, always keep be yourself and be authentically you. But I think being on the Hill, because it's kind of been harder for me because I my specialty is more in media, telecom and tech. And you already know mm. those are industries that it's not a lot of us that look like us. So when I'm in a room, often I'm the only female in the room and or the only black person in the room. So they may mm. tend, other people may tend to think that I'm the person to only speak on issues as it pertains to people of color or as it pertains to, to women and how it may affect gender issues. But mm. I speak up on everything that I feel comfortable or want to speak up on because I am just as qualified as my great grandmother used to tell me. And I know my worth. And I know the issues mm -hmm. and this is my background. And oftentimes I'll find that some of the guys who are talking so much don't even know what they're really talking about. So I may have to correct them sometimes. So, I mean, mm -hmm. I think navigating the hill, knowing my, my worth, knowing who I am, but just knowing that, hey, these are the issues and this is what I'm on Capitol Hill for. I'm able to go and have that confidence on a day-to-day -day basis. For sure. I think, and I think that that's important. And that leads me to my next question is we talk about imposter syndrome and we've had a lot of individuals jump on the podcast and these are some pretty accomplished people, but people have shared how they deal with imposter syndrome. I think about myself. Um, I've dealt with imposter syndrome um, more than for almost every professional job I've had. I've almost always been either one of the few or the only black person specifically black men. And mm -hmm. I know that like that's hard because you are you spoke about how they ask you or you're expected to speak on black issues only, right? But mm -hmm. your wealth of knowledge encompasses so much more. Um, so how have you thought through, like, well, let's talk about microaggressions for a second. How have mm -hmm. you dealt with these microaggressions, right? Um, and for people who don't know, like microaggressions are real and they mm -hmm. cut. And, and they make you think, do I really belong here? Like, am I good enough? Have, give us an example of a, a microaggression that you've experienced that may have been like the most memorable one or, or painful one you've experienced in your career. Oh, gosh, I feel like I experienced so many. <laughs> uh, <laughs> when I first started working for the Congresswoman, I specifically was her staffer on the Energy and Commerce Committee. And mm -hmm. a lot of the, like I said, I mentioned before, 
a lot of the people that I'm in a room with, typically I'm just in a room with all white boys. I'll be completely honest with you. Mm-hmm. And I have had some try to interrupt me multiple times when I'm talking um, mm. and or if they're talking about a certain issue and it's a black person issue, they'll ping it to me. They'll sometimes what I'll handle is I remember one time I told one guy, I don't I don't want to answer that question. I don't know why you asked me that question in the first place, because I don't know what mm-hmm. you're talking about. So that's right. my way of dealing with microaggression. Sometimes mm-hmm. I just pick it back on them. Why are you mm-hmm. asking me that? Now I make you feel comfortable because you have the question to why do you have that microaggression that you feel that you can say that to me? So that's my little way of being charade from the Housewives of Atlanta. Like who going to mm-hmm. check me? Who going to check me, boo? Yeah. That, that's, that's how I do it. If I don't want to answer it, I'm not going to answer it. And I think that that's, I think that that's a good way to do that. You, so, you spoke about uh, being always being like, or more often than not being the only person of color or woman of color in the office. Like, I know that, I know that there are a lot of people on the Hill um, who don't look like us, but there are also some good individuals. I know Congressman Lewis uh, Michael Collins was his chief of staff. Um, mm-hmm. He looks like us. There was a few others. Have you all created a sort of network? And like, do you all communicate? I think about uh, Michael. Michael just got chief of staff um, on Keenan's husband. Yeah. He just got chief of staff and Keenan is chief of staff. So like, uh, do you all have a network? How do you all manage this? Like, do you all talk informally? Is there some formally that you all do that other people could think? Because there are a lot of people who are one of the few uh, like people in leadership, and maybe they would benefit from thinking some of the strategies that you all use to like deal with this and handle it and address it day to day. Absolutely. So um, I will say this, there is a brotherhood and sisterhood that exists on the Hill. For and sure. it's not, you know, just about work, it's family stuff. People have marital issues, you have family issues, you know, just talking about kids. I remember my health concerns, for example, I have uterine fibroids. Mm-hmm. Another black chief, female chief, it had them too and had surgery. So I've been able to connect with her on that. But there are a couple ways that we connect. There's a Black Women's Congressional Alliance, mm. which I'm a part of. Kenan's a co-founder. Uh, so that's all the Black female staffers on both the House and the Senate side. Mm-hmm. And there's African-American men on the Hill. There's mm-hmm. Congressional Black Associates. The Senate has their own version. Um, so there, through those groups, we've been able to kind of connect just to talk about not just work, but also life and also mm. offer that support system that we're typically not going to get from other people. That's that's real. I know when I was there, you talk about like the, it's a family. When I worked on Capitol Hill, one thing that I always appreciated is no matter. And it's the same thing with black men. Um, out in the streets for the most part. If I'm walking or I see a black man, I immediately give him the black man head nod. And you know, that, it's, like, yeah. it's the universal, like, what's up, man? I see you. I'm acknowledging you. And when I was working on the Hill, and even when I'm there, you know, as a lobbyist, when I see other black staffers, like, no matter what, I immediately acknowledge their presence because mm-hmm. I know what it's like to walk around all day and not see anyone who looks like you for the most part, right? Yeah. Um, and so like that is that is very true. It is a it is a very uh, congenial place. People talk, 
They greet each other. I remember some of the best times I had was literally just going to lunch with other black staffers, right? Like, because mm-hmm. you know, you know that for a lot of these offices, if we don't get out and see each other then, or even just on the tram or, or anywhere, like we don't see each other. So that's, that's very real. What would you say to individuals who were contemplating? Like they said, man, I, I'm, there's a, there's a, a, a college senior, right? Who's thinking about coming up to Capitol Hill and trying their luck. There are individuals thinking about the, you know, the Congress is getting ready to turn over in January. So mm-hmm. I can imagine it's going to be, you know, a lot of a flurry of hiring as new people come and old people leave. What would you say to people who want to come on to Capitol Hill? What advice do you have for them? Find a way. Find if I would have known, so thinking back to myself, my 18 year old self, oh gosh, that's 18 years ago. But <laughs> had I been exposed, I would have made sure that I was an intern on Capitol Hill. I'm to the point now I have cousins. Um, if my niece and nephew, you know how you have like play nieces and stuff. Uh-huh, I want uh-huh. all of them to get that experience of Capitol Hill, no matter what industry, what they plan to do, whether they're a doctor, whether they want to be a lawyer, whether they want to be just a teacher. The cap- the thing about Capitol Hill is it, it exposes you to a network that you're never going to be exposed to anywhere else. You're going to be able to look look at policy and look at America and our democracy and how it's shaped in a different way than just watching CNN or MSNBC or whatever you may watch, right? So mm-hmm. I think it's about like the collective whole and how it can build you as a person, just being civically engaged and understand what's going on around you. So I say find a way And when I say find a way, I mean find a way by any means. We may Mm -hmm. not be that 18-year-old white kid whose dad has a house in D.C. and a house in New York and knows Congressman X, Y, and Z, and they automatically get the hookup. But there are ways through the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation. There's a lot of other organizations that have internships. But also just talk around. um, I've had... One girl that I met at a conference mentioned to me that she wanted an internship on the Hill. So I made sure she was placed in my office and she may Mm -hmm. not have had like the resources, but I made sure through the groups I'm associated with, I found some resources for her to be able to stay in D.C., um, Mm -hmm. be able to be in the office, be able to get class credit for her internship. So Mm -hmm. the same way that we look at just a basic job. This isn't necessarily just because of the job. This is necessarily because us, it makes us better in understanding the process. And it's going to make us civically engaged to where we know how to strategize. We're seeing everything with Black Lives Matter. We're seeing everything with these protests. So now it's another time to take it a step further. So we have kids that understand the process, then it's no telling what we can be able to do. It's not just about running for office. It's about Mm -hmm. having people in the back that are writing these policies and making sure that they are being implemented. And I think that's something that a lot of people don't understand that like the members of Congress are, are exceptionally bright, you know, wicked smart for the most part. A lot of them are However, the people who actually write the laws, right, and who write mm-hmm. the legislation and do the and have a lot of the meetings with constituents and understand the issues very in depth are the staffers, right? Exactly. Because there's so many issues that members can't know everything. But you have staffers who specialize in different areas 
and they actually listen to the constituents, come up with ideas, ways to use policy to solve everyday problems. And I think you spoke about this in-depth knowledge that you would get. I think another thing that people don't understand, and I try to explain this to individuals, what so I'm a teacher. I'm a former educator. So I speak education, right? Yes. I grew up, my first job was, was in Charlotte, North Carolina, teaching at Ransom Middle School. Shout out to Ransom Middle School. Yes. But I, so I, I can walk into a school and I speak education because I've been there before and I know what they're going through. Mm-hmm. Um, I then became a staffer on Capitol Hill. And really what, what, what being a staffer on Capitol Hill does is it gives you an opportunity to learn the language. Right. So when people when people talk about things like I can just be in D.C. And, and, and I can hear someone say, oh, yeah, put the bill in the hopper. If you never worked on Capitol Hill, you don't know what putting the bill. You don't in know the what hopper a hopper is. is. Exactly. Right. So so like it gives you access to people. And I think now as a lobbyist, like I speak lobby. So what you're really doing is you're learning languages that allow you to communicate across lines of difference and really build your network. And you talk, you spoke about something like how you work hard to make sure that people get access. I want to put a shameless plug in here. Many of you all know, and Char, you know this because you mm-hmm. uh, sat on a panel with the HBCU Collective. I created the HBCU Collective. Yes. Because, and I created it because when I was in Congressman Lewis's office, I realized that very few people who looked like me were walking the halls of Congress, even coming to have meetings with members. Mm-hmm. And Growing up, it wasn't, I didn't know that you could call, you could, you know, write your member of Congress, you could come to, to Washington, D.C., set a meeting with these individuals and like share your grievances and concerns. It wasn't something that my family did that anyone I knew spoke about. And so I realized as a former SGA president at an HBCU that like we needed to make sure we had people on the ground in these offices explaining to them the importance of HBCUs. And, and extolling the virtues of these organizations. So I created HBCU Collective to do that. But a shameless plug, we are working right now to make sure that next fall, I mean, next summer, we are going to have a group of HBCU grad, well, students, and they will be interns, and we're going to pay, we're going to give them a stipend to yes. help make sure that they can live in DC, they can work in DC. So that is in that is in the works right now. We're working to knock down these systemic barriers because I believe fully if we can get those students to have that experience, they can leave leave college and get a job on Capitol Hill as a staffer. You know, and then they can do what work their way up and guess what before you know it, we're going to attack this low level of um, black people in leadership, senior leadership positions on Capitol Hill. And so we're doing our part to do that. So keep, keep, keep a lookout for that. Cause we're working to build that pipeline as we speak. Right. Hey, now. I want, I want to, I want to intern. <laughs> oh, we, got you. we will get, we will get one in representative Clark's office. I promise you that. So I think that like, that's what we have to do. You spoke about how you've been able to turn around and reach back and get people in the office. I want to, I want to shift the conversation a little bit and I want to talk about um, allies, right? Mm-hmm. When do you feel like you've had an ally, um, an unexpected ally show up for you? Someone who stood in the gap for you um, and they didn't have to, who may not have been a person of color, it may have been white. What has that looked like for you? Have you had that experience on Capitol Hill or in your or in your professional journey, your professional career? 
Absolutely. I've actually had it on Capitol Hill. Okay. Um, and I think part of it is my allies have been white males, as mm. interesting as that may be. I think that there have been some people on the House Energy and Commerce Committee who have seen the importance of having diverse viewpoints. Mm -hmm. And that means having people that work in the office or that are able to speak up from diverse backgrounds. Mm -hmm. So some of the lead councils that are on the communications and technology subcommittee have been my allies and have actually just said, oh, we're going to go to Char Land for this bill because Char knows X, Y, and Z. She knows this group. She knows this person. She can build our coalition. Mm -hmm. And they've actually kind of volunteered me for stuff, but that's mm. because they were pushing me for people to know Char can take on this leadership capacity in X, Y, and Z role, which means I'm actually doing it for the Congresswoman, who mm -hmm. at the time was the only Black female on the House Energy and Commerce Committee. Oh, wow. Wow. So you've been, you and, and the Congresswoman have been knocking down these glass ceilings, right? Been busting through these glass ceilings. Let me ask you this question, because this is something that a lot of people, they, they struggle with. These white men pushed you but you had to have the, the, the sense of courage to step through that door, right? So like, how did you navigate that? Did you feel like, what did you feel like when they pushed you forward to do these things? Did you, were you nervous? And like, how have you dealt with imposter syndrome yourself? Yeah, I mean, I absolutely was nervous because uh -huh. sometimes it, it's hard trusting people. You don't know who a true ally is. Yes. Sometimes people will push themselves out to be an ally because it's trendy or mm. because it's adding to their worth or their network, so to speak. So I think I'm always nervous because I'm always trying to figure out who is a true ally in the fate, in, in the real sense, and who's mm. a fake ally. So I think right. that that's, that's one thing to kind of decipher. But I mean, as far as like imposter syndrome and, and things of that nature, I've just had to observe first and then if i feel comfortable be able to speak out and be in that leadership capacity and kind of follow the lane or the mode that the real ally was paving for me and mm -hmm. then after that i'm just authentically myself like i have no problem going in a room full of white boys who may be looking at me crazy because i have long dreads <laughs> you know mm -hmm. they don't i dress a certain way i may not look i'm not gonna look just like them right Right. Um, but then when I walk in a room and I start talking, not trying to be funny, sometimes I find out I'm way more qualified than they are. And I know the subject matter more than it than what they may know. And then they end up wanting to come to me to talk to me about if issues and bounce things off from me. So, I mean, there's a certain level of nervousness that you're going to have initially. But once mm -hmm. you find that real, true, authentic ally, you'll be able to just roll with it. And I think that, that I think that that's important. I I share I try to share my stories with individuals because um, I, I think that our stories are powerful. And when I think about my experience, you know, I, I cut my teeth as an educator with Teach for America, uh, but I also joined staff. And when I joined staff, I moved to Dallas, Texas, and I was the only black man on staff. I think we had we had a, a large staff at least 30 of us. Wow. And I was the only black man on staff. Luckily, I had a, um, an amazing manager 
Lacey, Lacey Pittman to Monica. I love her to this day. She just commented yeah. on she just commented on my Instagram story. That's my girl. Shout out to Lacey. But you know, I, I had these difficult conversations with her. And it's so interesting. This is a story that I've never really told a lot of people. Very similar to you. When I moved to Dallas, I had no money. Like my mother emptied her bank account to help mm -hmm. me get there because I had worked on President Obama's campaign in 2012. And I thought that I would, I was in graduate school in DC getting my master's in public policy. And I quit my job, dropped out of graduate school. And I uh, moved back to Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I went to Winston-Salem State University. Shout out to HBC. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I moved back to Winston-Salem and worked on President Obama's campaign. And I thought that, oh God, I would be able to move or transition from the campaign back to DC and get a job, maybe in the administration or something. Administration. Like yeah. But this is 2012 and 2008, you know, you had like the recession. And what I learned was people didn't leave. It wasn't like a, a usual administration. People stayed put because jobs were so scarce. And exactly. so I, I moved back to DC, finished up graduate school, was able to live off my savings. Uh, and my mother and sister, they would send me money and help me out. But I was job searching and I was looking for a job and I joined staff with Teach for America after graduate school. But I, I moved down to Dallas and I had I had nothing, like literally nothing. And I ended up staying. I stayed in an extended stay because like, number one, I was nervous about living in Dallas, um, being the only black man at a job. It was rough. I knew no one there. But two, I really didn't have the money that I needed to like really transition and settle like I, I would have had I had I been like financially successful at that point in time in my life. But I can remember having a manager like Lacey. Um, and there when you talk about unexpected allies, I didn't even have a car. I lived on the on the the this area where I could catch the train downtown. And there was a white lady, Melissa Higginbotham. And Melissa, if you're listening to this, when you listen to this, thank you so much. I didn't have a car. I didn't have anything. Melissa Higginbotham had a son who was away in college. And she said, here, take this car. We don't need it. She let me have that car. And there's a gentleman by the name of Lawrence. Um, he went to UT Austin. And he went to graduate school at Harvard. But he created this thing called the Family Dinner. And the family dinner is a joint. They come together in different cities all across America. They come together two times a year in the fall and in the spring. And it's just people of color, but it's anybody, but majority people of color. And you come together and you create a relationship. And I went from getting ready to leave because I didn't have like friends, family, anyone there. It was hard being the only black man to having that difficult conversation with Lacey, who became an unexpected ally because they began to hire more black men. I didn't feel alone. Um, mm -hmm to leaving, making the decision to leave, to having, going to the family dinner to the next weekend, being on someone's couch watching NFL that the next weekend from someone I met at the family dinner. I say all of that to say how important it is to have people in your corner to be able to establish these relationships. And so I wanted to share that because I think that it's probably one of the most important things that, that we can do. I want to I want to ask you another question because we have you at this we have you at the table and people don't understand this. We're talking about what's happening in this country. How important is it for people, specifically black people to to still be in the streets marching and stuff, but also address like policy change. When you think about 
the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act that just passed the House. You know, so thankful I was able to write a piece of legislation for Congressman Lewis, um, yes. the, the Law Enforcement Inclusion Act that was included in that piece of legislation. So it passed the House. But how important is it to get people from out of the streets and involved in the policy process so that we can really affect change? It's extremely important. Um, I think that personally for me, I'm thinking back to that great grandmother and great grand uncle that I was raised with in Jacksonville, Florida. Mm -hmm. And it has me thinking back to why was voting so important to them? Mm. Why was why was it that whenever someone was on the ballot, it didn't matter if it was the school board, city council, my great grandmother had done research them. She saved all of their pamphlets. Mm -hmm. She just wanted to have this sense of what is going on in the community and who's going to represent me. Mm. So the one thing that I would say, and I tell this to all my mentees, I say it to my niece, my niece, my nephew, every young person I'm around, especially this new Gen Z generation we have, that's just extremely powerful. Like they're going to do so many different things, but don't think of policy and politics as oh, I want to be a politician or, you know, oh, you know, I may want to work on a campaign. Think of it as a person. This is going to make me a better person if I know fully the political process, because it's going to make me a player in policy and politics. But it's not just about Congress. Mm -hmm. It's about local issues and things that are on the ground. A lot of things that are going on with Breonna Taylor, you see, are more with what the state AG is not charging the officers, right? Exactly. A lot of things going on with George Floyd, those are local issues. So if I had to tell anyone, is it's a, it's a top-down and bottom-up approach. Mm -hmm. You want to be able to be knowledgeable about your school board members, your city council members, your local commissions. You want to be knowledgeable about your the House and Senate on a state level and the House and Senate on a federal level. Mm -hmm. So it's so important to get involved now. And that's what working on Capitol Hill as a staffer does. It kind of gives you that full picture view. And then you're powerful because you may know, oh, I may know so-and-so that lobbies for X, Y, and Z. They can get this done in my community mm -hmm. or oh, I know this school board member, I have an idea for something that's going to be better my child's elementary school. Let me go po pose that question to them. Mm -hmm. So that's why I'm saying it makes you a better, you're civically engaged, but it makes you better as yourself because you know these unlimited resources that you have. Char, that is, that is so real. And I, I want to tell you this. I left Capitol Hill and went and became a director of government relations for a national nonprofit doing education policy. But one thing that has always resonated with me, because after I left that organization, I transitioned to the ACLU and became the political director. And I recently left the ACLU because I started a PAC. Uh, and the PAC is called Justice Through Police Reform. And we fight. We are raising money. We are, we are supporting candidates down ballot at the local and state level. And our entire, like the entire platform that we have is geared towards police reform, comprehensive police reform. That's wonderful. I mean, and we have, I mean, we just sent out, we, we sent out a questionnaire. People are, we have interviews set up next week uh, with over 40 candidates across the country in four different states because I was able to create that network in DC. I knew that something was wrong. 
And mm-hmm. I knew that police reform, in my opinion, you know, is the civil rights issue of our time. This is our, this is the civil rights issue of our time, police reform. Exactly. And so what we're able to do is we're able to support candidates up and down the ballot, give them real money. These are like local races. Like give them real money, give them a thousand five hundred dollars and get them to run for office because these things are going to help us support these candidates and get them in the office who commit to working on comprehensive police reform. So like what you just said about knowing and getting those relationships is so real and it has helped me personally. I want to ask you this question. We talk about and you see this and for those people who follow the news, everyone always say, oh, Congress doesn't work. Like gridlock is so bad in DC. Congress doesn't work. No one does their job. A lot of members of Congress have super low favorability ratings. But one thing I have a, a idea, an hypothesis. In the past, I believe that Congress worked better because the people who were in Congress, people who were in Congress were nothing but a lot of um, white older men. And they were able to work with each other and like they could go to dinner with each other and work with each other because they knew each other so they can make bad decisions bad policy decisions but then go talk about it at dinner what we have now is one of the most diverse diverse congresses ever and so instead of it being john and james having a a, a, a disagreement and then going to dinner because john and james are friends they know each other they at the same country club it's john and you know alexandra right yeah it's, yeah it's john it's john and you know representative eon right and um and like these people, they, they may not have the same orientation. What are your thoughts on that? And like, why do you think gridlock is so bad in DC? Yeah, um, I think gridlock is bad just for the simple fact of, just like what you mentioned, right? There's so much uh, diversity in thought and diversity in our members, which is great because that represents America. That means all the districts around America are diverse, but it also comes a point to where members have to decide, is it better to come together and come up with a legislative solution now? Mm-hmm. Or do I wanna wait later when I feel like there may be more people that may be powerful that look like me, that we can just go ahead and ram through whatever bill or whatever piece of legislation, legislative solution that we wanna ram through. Right, right. So we don't have that sense of bipartisanship or camaraderie that has happened in the past. But I think it's just politics, right? We're going to have these ebb and flows, right? We're going to have a time frame where Republicans and Democrats and independents are working together because they do want to have some type of solution on X, Y, and Z bill. And then Mm -hmm. we're going to have times when people are like, oh, nah, like my side is right. Your side is wrong. Right. Whoever's in power is just going to be able to get whatever done that they want done because they don't see the importance of working together on these issues. Mm, that makes me think about, we saw that. We saw that with, with COVID. The first the first stimulus package that really helped small businesses and, and, and community individuals that came out. And it was done in a rather bipartisan way for the most part, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but we also see what just happened with the last package that Republicans tried to get through and, you know, Democrats were able to block it. And they said that this doesn't go far enough in the Senate, right? It doesn't go far enough. We have people, we have people who are struggling to pay their bills. People are getting evicted. Um, Like, what do you see and how does it impact you? Like you work 
in the very halls of power. You're a black woman. COVID has devastated our country and it has impacted predominantly disproportionately, let's say disproportionately, black and brown people. Mm-hmm. How has your office, and so two part question, how has your office addressed like COVID in, and how has uh, the Congress, how do you see like COVID's impact upon Congress? Yeah, I mean, so in my district, um, my boss has one of the most diverse districts. One block may be a Haitian family. Another block may be a family from Bangladesh. Mm-hmm. Another block may be a Orthodox Jewish family. So mm-hmm. she represents like every constituency with the gamut. But one thing I can t- people are hurting, especially in a Brooklyn, New York, where prices, housing is high in itself. And now you may have lost your job. You got your first stimulus check, but that was how many months ago, right? So many months. And it was only 20, max 2,200, you know? 2,200, right? That's not enough for, for, I don't know what, right? And then, you know, you're going to your local food pantries to get food. Um, You lost your job. People are just hurting. They're struggling, right? Now, I think for... A lot of things that people don't think about is at the beginning, people were hurting and a lot of outside groups put pressure mm. on these members like, hey, I'm hurting. You have to do something now. Right, right, right. I think that along the way, there may have been this depletion of that pressure. And so on the House side, we had the HEROES Act mm-hmm. right? that was right. passed so yep. many weeks ago. But there wasn't as much added pressure on the Senate side to say you need to take out take out this Heroes Act as is. Mm-hmm. So it's just been this ping pong, this bouncing forth, b- back and forth um, when it comes to what the net stimulus package should look like. So I think that like these outside groups and people like us, especially brown and black people who are experiencing disproportionate levels of catching COVID, the effects that it's on our families, uh, being evicted from their apartments and their houses, their jobs. Like we have to, with the groups that represent people that look like us, we have to think about how can we put that added pressure on it where it's not a skinny stimulus package that's not going to give us but three hundred dollars exactly and that's not going to that's not going to get the job done let me ask you this what do you think what do you say to people who who think that people who work in dc because i hear this all the time when i was in dc i heard it when i moved back home to north carolina uh i get it a lot now that people who live in dc are inside of a bubble and what matters in D.C. doesn't matter outside of D.C. And that people, members of Congress specifically, are like estranged from everyday life that most Americans are facing. I get that question all the time. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, I, get I get it from family. I get it from friends. Like you're in a bubble. You don't really know what's going on on the ground um, as far as like members being out of touch. But I mean, one thing that I always tell people they don't really understand what members of Congress do or go mm-hmm. to. So mm-hmm. I think it's partly like an educational process for them. Mm-hmm. For example, I was telling my sorority sister, she didn't know that my boss, the Congresswoman flies out every weekend when we're in session. Mm-hmm. She was just thinking she stays in DC and they just, that's just the story. Living it up, yeah. Living, Living it up, it up right? in DC. In one of the most expensive places to be in. Come on now. 
but she didn't know, hey, literally when this woman steps off the plane, she's going to her district office or she's going to these events. So there are sacrifices that these members are making on top of having personal lives that they are in their districts and they're also doing work and their job is 24 seven. It doesn't turn off at any point. So I think part of that is that educational process. But if they think that staffers or a member may be out of touch, I, I challenge them to say, what are you doing to make sure that you're educating your member and their offices on what's really going on? My email get blown up all the time. My work cell gets blown up all the time. I actually have constituents now who are like my buddies that tell me what's going down on the ground. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate that because they know that this is a life or death situation. Right. They don't take this lightly. And we I even have some constituents who are training their kids to be the same way. So then I'm getting you know, X, Y, and Z teacher and their class able to come to DC pre-COVID and lobby us and tell us about what's going on on the ground. So that's when I, I think it's an educational process on both ends. Mm, I think that's a, I, that's a very good point. I was on Instagram and a good friend of mine um, was talking about August recess. And it was like, you got members of Congress going home and we're in the middle of, of COVID. They're taking a vacation. And as a former staffer, like I understood that just because a member is not in DC does not mean that they're taking a vacation. There are districts, like in, in the district, you have no, some members have numerous offices within the district. And it's equally important that they spend time in the district so that they can understand and hear what's going on, as well as uh, spend time in DC where they're passing laws. So I think that that, that, uh, that understanding that you just mentioned, right, of people not fully understanding what a member like life could look like that's super important can you follow up to that could you would you be willing to give people maybe like a a a snapshot of what a day looks like for a member of congress because people often think like oh it's just you you, you're in dc you're going to dinners and lunches and then you go vote can you give them a snapshot of what a, a typical day could look like for a potential member Absolutely. So what I'll do is um, I'll give a snapshot because we're actually coming back from August recess. I put in air quotes because it's not really a recess. It's right. Typically call it our district work period where they're doing work in the, in the district. So, for example, tomorrow, a lot of members are going to have conference calls or Zooms with their staff. And that may be a typical staff meeting to go through what their schedule is going to look like for the week to go through what bills and legislation um, they're going to be voting on this week. So after a typical staff meeting, they may have a Democratic caucus call. For example, my boss is a Democrat. So this is led by Dem caucus chair Hakeem Jeffries, where they're talking about what they're voting on for the week and they get together as members. Shout out to New York because New York, New York is yeah. Shout out to New York. Go, ahead. Go New York. <laughs> And so, you know, there's there's a couple calls that they may have. And then first votes on Monday tomorrow aren't scheduled until 630. So they'll vote 630 on those bills. And then maybe after the first votes um, on Monday nights, I know that Congressional Black Caucus typically has special order hour. So special order hour is a time frame where CBC members can pick a certain issue to talk about and they have a whole hour they had typically is about five minutes per member 
for an average person that wants to go watch it, it's on C-SPAN. When I worked for the CBC, I had to organize special order hour. But <laughs> um, and then, you know, the next day they may wake up and they may have a couple meetings. So not only is there a Dem caucus meeting, Speaker Pelosi has her own set of meetings. Mm-hmm. Um, but Clyburn has his own set of meetings because he has to whip votes and make sure he has enough votes for these bills to pass. Mm-hmm. Leader Poirier has his leaders council meetings. A lot of these meetings and these calls have guest speakers. So Stacey Abrams has been a guest speaker to talk about, you know, COVID and voting, right? Mm-hmm. We've had uh, guest speakers from administration come in and talk about the COVID response and what they're doing. So in between these meetings, there are committee hearings. So whatever committees and members are on, whether it's oversight, energy and commerce, they have committee hearings they're going to. They have to eat at some point. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, if, if they're running for re-election right now, they're going to need fundraisers. So sometimes the fundraisers may be a dinner, it may be a lunch, it may be a breakfast because they're having to um, talk to people about the re-election campaign. So a typical day, they may have like three or four meetings and one or two committee hearings. Mm. And it just it's exhausting just thinking about it. Um, all the things that they have to go through. In addition to just knowing that these members are regular human beings, they have families, right? Their families may be dying from COVID, right? Exactly. Like, yeah, no, that is so real. Congressman Lewis would be up at crack of dawn every morning, crack of dawn, reading this newspaper, trying to figure out what bills are coming up, having the stances in meetings. And like, I never once heard him complain. I never once yeah. heard them complain. And, you know, pe- they, they're always accosted. You know, when you're going out, you know, I can speak to Congressman Lewis specifically. The worst part of working for Congressman Lewis, you know, honestly was like being his body man when we were out of public because he gave of his time so freely. And mm-hmm. it was our job to make sure that they were on time to the next thing. And exactly. <laughs> like trying to get him to, hey, you get, we got a committee meeting, but a hundred people want an autograph or take a picture with them. So I think that um, I think that that was a good synopsis of like what they go through on a day to day basis and like what you experience. We want to get ready and wrap this up. But one thing that's always important to me that I say to individuals, people listen to this and glean and I want them to be able to take away things from it. I want them to know like they can become the next chief of staff, even though it's not a lot of us. I always think of this podcast very akin to that young man in the Oval Office as President Obama was bending over. He was reaching up, touching his hair to say that his hair was just like yours, right? Mm-hmm. Sorry, just like this. So I want to you, I want to ask you this question. And what would you say to people who come in behind you um, who want to be a chief of staff, who want to get into politics and, and like who want to do these things? What are your advice? I know you said like, do it by any means, any means possible. But if you could give like some like specific action steps or resources that they can look into, because the next chief of staff is listening to this. And I want them to be able to say years down the line, very similar to how Chadwick Bozeman at his speech for Denzel said, Denzel gave him money to send him overseas to learn at a school, pay for his schooling. And he is where he was. Well, he is, he is who he is or who he was as a direct result of that. I want people to be able to say, you know what? I listened to Char on Black Work Experience podcast, and I heard her give these resources, and I followed them, and now I am here. What would you say? What resources would you give? Would you direct people to? 
Oh, I would say hit me up now. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I would say to um, one thing I love about us, right? And I love about being a black female and just a black person on the Hill, period, is we uplift each other. We're all about resilience and empowerment. So thank you, Robert, just for all of the things that you are doing, because you are helping to bridge and build the next generation of politicos and politicians. Mm -hmm. Um, So I would say just to think about finding a mentor Mm -hmm. and maybe it's somebody that is around you. It may not necessarily be a person who's a chief right now. It may have been a person that was a chief. It may be a person that knows the chief of staff. It might be a lobbyist. Um, Whoever it is, just have someone that you can have an honest conversation with about their experience and where they're going. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or maybe they can put you in touch with a chief to have that honest conversation. So finding a mentor is key. Second thing I would say is join an organization or be a part of some type of group that's affiliated with the Hill Mm. or be able to be uh, pervy to the type of events on the Hill that's going to help you get to that chief of staff level. Because maybe it's an event that you meet a chief that ends up being your mentor. Mm -hmm. That's true. So make sure you have those type of resources. And a lot of those resources are affiliated through organizations and groups typically. And lastly, the thing I would say most importantly is be yourself. Mm. Uh, We talked about that imposter syndrome. We talked about a lot of different things. In Capitol Hill, I feel like you can be in a bubble sometimes and you don't want to get sucked sucked up in that bubble. You want to be the same person. I'm Char from Jacksonville, Florida with the country accent even if I'm in the room with the Congresswoman, with mm-hmm. people from New York, <laughs> all Deltas, and I'm an AKA. I'm Shout out to the AKAs. Exactly. <laughs> I, I'm still that same person cracking that joke and being myself because you're only going to be good in chasing your dreams and your job if you feel comfortable in who you are and where you're headed and where you're going. So find that mentor find whatever groups and organizations you can be a part of. And then when you have all of that, just be yourself. Mm, that's amazing. I think that's, that's amazing advice. The last question is if you could broadcast a message to white allies mm-hmm. who want to step up and, and they want to help um, clear the way, right? We talked about microaggressions at work. We talked about people, you know, saying things that are hurtful, expecting you to speak on black issues only or first and foremost, like, what would you say to them, white allies who want to step up and be a resource during this time? Absolutely. I think that the one thing I would say to them is being an ally is 24-7. It's a part mm. of your character and the building blocks of your character and who you truly are. And it's not something that's trendy. So you have to take this work seriously. And to be an ally 24-7, it means that the don't throw a bone our project temporarily. This mm. is something that you're trying to affect permanent change. You're trying to affect inclusion and full inclusion, not just inclusion for a short term. You want long term inclusion where you can see long term gains. So be a real ally and not just because it's trending, we see what's going on in the news and everything, because this is also a part of truly who you are and how people are going to view you and how you're going to shape 
the next type of allies that come behind you, whether it's your kids or whether it's other generations or whether it's the person looking at you. Because on the biggest thing I would say on the Hill, everyone's observant of how people act. Everyone knows positive energy and everyone knows negative energy. So be that type of person and give off positive energy. So you are helping other people to find that light. Mm-hmm. Listen, this has been one of my favorite episodes. I want to say thank you to Char for joining me. Thank you for like making time. Thank you for giving so many words and gems to individuals, the listeners. People know what to do. They know what resources to look at. They know what a, a typical day in a member of a Congress life looks like, all because of you made time to share these gems with us. So thank you for joining the podcast. I'm so honored to have you on. I'm honored and anything you need, I got you. This is wonderful. And just thank you so much for even thinking of me and you're doing excellent work. I, I salute you, my brother. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for listening to the Black Work Experience Podcast. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us. If you would like to hear more, follow us on IG at BWEP. We're also on Twitter at BWE Podcast. Black Work Experience is hosted and produced by me, Robert Stevens. Our show is mixed by strategic communication specialist, Sarah Daggett. Find out more about her amazing work at DaggettConsultingLLC.com. That's Daggett, D-A-G-G-E-T-T, ConsultingLLC.com. Our theme music was composed by Cameron Wright. If you would like to contribute to Mail Time, please submit your Mail Times on our IG at BWE Pod. You can also DM us on Twitter at BWE Podcast or via email at blackworkexperiencepod at gmail.com. Domino, domino, only about a few blacks I had. Domino, domino, only about a few blacks I had.